Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Thank you for coming again. I'm just going to start, introduce myself, Andrew Jones, as most of you know at this point. Um, so we're in November. That means it is officially 800 years since Lateran IV. Yeah, right? Well, actually, about ne- next week it started. Um, I'm sure there'll be a party here on campus somewhere, an anniversary party, but I'll, I'll have to miss it. Um, okay, so I'm, I'll just start here, even though Rob is, is gone. Are we ready there? Yeah? Okay. So my first lecture on Lateran IV, in the first le- lecture I explained that there were two primary focuses of the council. You remember there was the crusade and there was reform of the universal church. Um, last week I focused on reform and today I'm going to uh, focus on the crusade. But really what I'm going to talk about today is the sword. Um, the Fourth Lateran Council had a great deal to say about the sword, about the use of force. Uh, it launched a crusade to the Holy Land. It condemned heretics and demanded that the temporal sword be wielded against them, and it set up procedures that would become the Inquisition, what we we think of as the Inquisition. And that's just to name a few things. The sword actually permeates throughout the the canons of the council. Um, So nothing, I think, in the history of the church, or very little, probably nothing, is more controversial than its use of the sword. Crusade and Inquisition is often seen as the embodiment of all that's wrong with medieval Catholicism. Uh, How could a society, right, how could a society that's rooted in the love of God, a society that is committed to a vision of unity in in faith and charity, a society that looks to Christ, who's the ultimate peacemaker as its model, how could such a society use violence to advance his vision? This is the question. Isn't the crusade um, and coercive action against heresy Uh, the ultimate proof of a fundamental um, contradiction or fundamental hypocrisy to the the society. Um, That's sort of the question. And it's hard to answer these questions in a manner that doesn't sound forced or doesn't sound like you're making excuses for Christianity. Often motivated by these difficulties, we get certain strategies in apologetics. Often, apologists will claim that it wasn't really the church at all that used the sword. They'll claim that rather it was the state, that it was the princes and kings, the secular lords who used force against heretics and who fought the crusades. Another strategy that's sometimes used is to argue that the use of force was purely defensive, that the crusade is an example of a just war, right? a defensive war against Muslim aggression. A third tactic is sometimes to argue that the scale of the evils of crusade and inquisition have been grossly exaggerated. Um, Within this line of thought, it's not that the crusades and the persecution of heretics were not hypocritical, it's rather that hypocrisy was tangential to the essence of Christianity. Um, They were really rather small scale and so cannot be used to argue against medieval Christianity itself. So there's some truth to each one of these strategies. It is true that the priests did not themselves kill anyone. It is true that the Crusades to the Holy Land were understood as a just war against aggressors. It is true that the scale of the killing of heretics and the bloodiness of the Crusades has been grossly, grossly exaggerated by modern anti-Catholic and then anti-Christian propaganda. Um, Nevertheless, all three of these approaches fail fundamentally to understand the use of the sword in the manner in which the Christians of the period understood it. Uh, All three fail ultimately to place the sword within the worldview of the people who actually wielded it. So today I'm going to try to to do this. Um, What did the fathers of Lateran IV understand themselves to be doing? So one, one of the things we have to understand about the church in 1215 if we're going to answer these questions, is that it is made up of both the laity and the clergy. Sometimes the word church was used in the sense of the clerical uh, institutions and and its properties, which is the sense we often use it today in everyday speech, but this was never the dominant understanding. Anytime people meant to be precise, they always referred to the church as being divided into two orders, the laity and the clergy, and then the clergy were normally subdivided into two Uh, the regulars who lived according to a rule, and the seculars who did not, who were more often just referred to as the clergy. 
We saw this clearly last week um, when I discussed reform. You'll recall that Pope Innocent III, who's the Pope who called Lateran IV, stated that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome represented the three lives, the lay, regular, and clerical. He stated, the lay life should anoint the feet of Jesus, the regular life the head, and the clerical life the body. For the feet of Christ are the poor, the head is the divinity, and the body is the church. We saw how the goal of the reform movement that led up to Lateran IV was to bring each of these orders through the fourfold uh, ascent from the historical to the allegorical to the tropological and finally to the anagogical, which was, of course, um, ultimately salvation itself. So last week I focused on the tropological. This was the movement of the interiorization um, wherein the gospel became the very content of one's character. We saw how with the monks, this expressed itself in liturgical prayer, how with the clergy it expressed itself in preaching through word and deed, and with the lay and that the laity expressed their turn to the tropological through the construction of a society of charity, a, a society of care for the poor, of honest work, of the support of the clergy, of the raising of families, and of the defense of Christendom. This was how they made Christ present in the world. Each of the three orders were reformed, conformed to Christ, and together they formed the very body of Christ, um, and this is, the this is really the reforming vision of the church that we talked about last week. However, last week I really started in the middle, because I started with the turn to the tropological. But this is not where the fourfold ascent begins, right? It, it isn't. This is, where, this is not where salvation history begins, the ultimate, which is the ultimate reform story. Rather, it starts in the historical. Right? It's in the realm of things and events that are not yet brought up into the spiritual senses. In the moral life, this is the realm devoid of grace, and so of the theological virtues of faith, charity, and hope. What I want us to explore today is how this is the realm of violence, the realm of the sword, and the action of the church's swords in this realm was oriented toward reform, toward movement out of the historical and into the spiritual ascent toward God. To the Christians of 1215, this action was an essential part of the very salvific mission of the church. You'll recall in the first lecture I drew on the whiteboard a diagram that looks like this to describe the progression of the four senses of scripture. As we progress to the right into the allegorical understanding, more and more history becomes concentrated into the more dense allegory but some remains on the margins, some work remains to be done. You'll remember that allegory is the reading of history through Christ and is based on the virtue of faith, the faith that Christ is the, is the definitive self-revelation of God and so the lens through which all reality must be read. Allegory is at the same time being absorbed into the far more dense tropology, but again, there remains uninteriorized faith on the margins. Tropology, you'll recall, is rooted in the interiorization of the content of the faith found in the allegorical reading of history. Tropology is dependent on the, con the, con the, the conforming of oneself to Christ and the virtue of charity. Tropology intensifies our ability to see allegory, and so it is pulling more history into allegory and more allegory into itself with more truth, Tropology itself becomes more complete, more dense. The conclusion is the point of full convergence, which is anagogy. It's the final convergence of the intellect and faith and the will and charity. It is the thing that is sought, the thing which drives one forward in the Christian life. It is the goal, and so dependent on the virtue of hope. Now, pure anagogy, the final convergence, you'll recall, is not possible in this life. Perfect contemplation, communion with God himself is found in heaven. This means that no matter how close one gets to perfect anagogy, no matter how deep into the tropological transitioning into the anagogical one gets, there always remains, there remains always history that is not yet understood through faith and faith that is not yet interiorized in charity. The effect is that in this life, the meaning of scripture is bottomless. During this pilgrimage, one never exhausts the revelation that is contained within Scripture. One of the themes of these lectures 
has been how this pattern of ascent toward God was repeated over and over again at different levels of scale. I have referred to this as a fractal deep structure of their cosmology. This is a fractal showing here. You will recall these sequences that I've discussed. Salvation history goes from nature through law to grace and then the salvation. The spiritual life goes through the purgative, the illuminative phases before, and then the illuminative phases before arriving at the unitive. The monk's practice went from reading to meditation to prayer and finally to contemplation. The schoolmen adapted this sequence to reading, disputation, preaching, and then perfection. I, I, I tried to show how the reform movement of the religious life in the 12th century followed a similar pattern from Cluny to the Cistercians and finally to Francis and Dominic and the Mendicant Orders. Often this, the division between the active life and the contemplative, contemplative life in general was read within this schema. Finally, the topic of today, which we might call politics, but which I think we ought to call social order. Um, here the stages go from coercion, the sword, to the law, which remains prescriptive, but is obeyed out of faith and the fear of God, to the law of charity, which is the interiorized law, and finally to true peace. This is a sequence that I want to spend some time on. So let's map it. We map it onto the previous diagram. For the individual person, we should read it like this. The realm of coercion is the realm of those things that we do or do not do only because we fear the earthly consequences for doing otherwise. In this realm, if we believe ourselves capable of getting away with violating a certain precept, which we want to, desire, to, to uh, uh, violate, we will do so. Similarly, if we believe ourselves likely to win the fight that would ensue for us violating some precept or for some act of aggression, we will violate it. This is the realm of violence. So to live completely in this realm is to be a beast and not a man, as they would say. As we move to the right of movement to which we are nudged through natural law, which is a different topic, we enter the realm of law. Here we obey a law because we have faith that is right, because we believe this is what God wants us to do and we do not want to offend God. Nevertheless, it is a law that remains outside ourselves. We obey it, but it remains prescriptive. We would rather not obey it often, and so we are subject to it. As we move to the right, we interiorize the law of ch in charity. As we become conformed to Christ, as we become a person of true charity, the law is no longer proscriptive because it no longer binds us. Rather, we become the type of person who fulfills the, the law simply by being ourselves. Finally, we come to peace. As St. Augustine remarked, thus we may say of peace that we have thus we may say of peace what we have said of eternal life, that it is our highest good. Peace is the fulfillment of all desire. Peace is the condition that drives the whole dynamic. The final peace is, of course, nothing short of eternal life, though in this life, like the anagogical sense, we move deeper into it, approach its perfection as we move up the ladder of ascent, even if its final consummation remains out of reach. Now, like with the senses of scripture, no matter how far we move to the right, no matter how far we ascend toward perfect peace, there remains areas in our life where we remain subject to the law, and there remains areas in our life where we are subject to coercion, even if they are ever diminishing as we, as we approach perfection. What I have said here concerning the individual Christian was true of Christian society as a whole. The dynamic of reform, which I talked about so much last week, moves society deeper into the tropological. More and more society, more and more of society was organized and operated within the realm of charity, but there remained always unreformed areas, people or parts of people's lives, institutions, customs, behaviors that remained based in sin, vice, selfishness, and violence. The dynamic was to reduce these areas to progressively convert them into the realm of virtue and so to eliminate them. Peace was the goal, the motivating impulse, and the whole movement was one of perfecting peace. As St. Augustine and the medievals who followed in his footsteps asserted, even in the realm of violence, it was ultimately the desire for peace that motivated social action. For example, the thief was filled with unease, with a sense of lack and scarcity, and it was his hope to alleviate this unease, to find peace that motivated him to steal. The dynamic of social reform 
was to replace areas of false peace, areas where people were mistaken in their pursuit of peace with true peace. This was, we might say, the medieval understanding of the imperative of social justice. Peace then was directly related to conversion, the move of the heart through faith into charity and the move of society into peace were the same movement. We're now in a place to introduce the church's swords and the role they played. The medieval Christians understood the church as having two powers, the temporal and the spiritual. Each power was instrumental to the construction of the society of charity and each power wielded a sword. The temporal power was the temporal sword, I should say, was wielded by the laity and the spiritual sword by the clergy, and they were understood as working together to effect peace. Here is how they worked. If I can diagram it. On this diagram, so what you see here is I've rearranged the stages of ascent towards peace vertically instead of left to right. Um, so being subject to the law and faith leads up to the interiorized charity, which leads to true peace, which is the goal or the hope of the whole dynamic. You can see that with the blue line. These are the, the spiritual stages, and they operate in the realm of grace, or what was sometimes referred to as the realm of virtue. The reforming ideal, as we discussed at length last week, was the realm of charity, um, of the tropological sense of scripture, which you'll recall was the social or the ecclesial sense of scripture. So in a, in a reformed society of charity, as you see here on the chart, each order in society lives their interiorization of the gospel in a different manner. The clerics, who are the spiritual power, conform themselves to Christ through their preaching, in word and example, and through confecting the sacraments. They make Christ sacramentally present in both his words and his acts, in both his teaching and his body. This is the spiritual power properly understood. The temporal power, the laity, live their interiorization of the gospel through the corporal acts of mercy, through the construction of a society of charity. This means they work to grow food, they build shelters, they take care of the weak and the sick, they shape the world of people and things through their life of charity. This is the temporal power properly understood. While properly speaking, they held neither the spiritual nor the temporal powers, the monks and nuns, you will recall, made their interiorization of the gospel present through their perfect prayer. Now each of these was completely dependent on the others. Consider the Eucharist itself. It requires the priest, of course, to confect, but it requires also the laity, because it is precisely the fruit of their labor, bread and wine, that is being turned into the body and blood of the Lord. The Eucharist itself, of course, is brought to the people within the context of liturgical prayer, which is the very perfection of the lives of the monks. All the orders of society in their perfection come together in the mass where they become definitively the very body of Christ. Both the spiritual power and the temporal power were completely necessary for this to occur. Like the senses of scripture, the temporal world of things and events is not destroyed by grace, by the, by the spiritual. Rather, the temporal world is presupposed and is perfected in the spiritual. The lower senses are brought up completely into the higher senses. This whole world of ascent, which we can call simply the church, is a constant work in progress. This is a perpetual dynamic of bringing more of these aspects of life that have not yet fully interiorized the gospel up into the life of charity, and the whole thing is dependent on grace and man's cooperation with it. The dashed line here represents the divide between this realm of virtue and grace and the realm of sin and vice, between the historical lifted up into the spiritual and the simply historical devoid of grace. Here I'm calling it the realm of coercion. This is the realm that needs to be brought up and converted into the spiritual through grace and the growth of faith, charity, and hope. This is the realm of unredeemed humanity. On the spiritual side, we get such things as simony, heresy, and paganism. On the temporal side, we get criminals, tyrants, and mercenaries, violence. This is mortal sin. This is the condition that humanity needs to be saved from. It was the mission of the church to bring all of this up into itself, up the ladder of ascent to salvation. It is in relation to this realm that we see the spiritual and temporal powers transition into the spiritual and temporal swords. So I want to zoom in on this part of the diagram here. So that's what you're seeing. I'll give you a quick orientation. So what I've done here 
in the blue center is expanded the dotted line, the boundary between the realm of grace and that of sin, in order to show the transition between one and the other and the behaviors of the two powers during it. We start at the top of the spiritual power column where it says preaching in the sacraments. Here we are in the beginning of the realm where people are subject to the law and faith but have not interiorized it in charity. Here, the spiritual power works to bring people up into charity through its preaching and through the grace um, given in the sacraments. We talked about this extensively last week. The temporal power, for its part, here offers a society of charity for the people to be integrated into. Now, if someone begins to sink below this level, you can see this, uh, this decline with a black arrow, the actions of the two powers change. As we transition deeper into the realm of sin, the spiritual power preaches penance and exhorts conversion. The temporal power provides guardrails. It provides a structure of order and it provides social pressure that might help turn the backslider around. As the decline continues, the spiritual power threatens excommunication. This is the cutting off of sacramental grace. Remember, it is sacramental grace that makes the entire dynamic of ascent possible. The spiritual power's threat to cut this off was an attempt at shaking the sinner out of his sins. If the sinner is still in the realm of faith, if he still recognizes the ascent into charity as the thing he ought to be doing, this threat is terrible indeed, for it is the cutting off of the very path to salvation. This is the threat of the spiritual sword. At this point, the temporal sword, the temporal power threatens the use of force, which is just another way of saying that it threatens to expel the sinner from the society of charity and peace. Now, both this move towards excommunication and toward the use of force must be seen as a move that is initiated by the public sinner himself. If he slips into mortal sin, he has, of course, excommunicated himself. And if he slips into crime, he has, of course, expelled himself from the society of charity. Oh, I jumped the gun. Finally, we have excommunication itself, which is the spiritual sword properly understood. When the spiritual power wielded its sword, when it excommunicated someone, it was supposed to be, they never tired of saying, medicinal. Its purpose was to heal the sinner. And this might seem counterintuitive, but you consider the man of even minimal faith, even a minimal acceptance of the necessity of the ascent to salvation provided within the church could not help but be stirred by his own excommunication. He may have thought himself right in his sins. He may, through a malformed conscience, he may have been able to justify his defiance of the law, but to be without the sacraments, um, no Christian in the middle, medieval period could accept this easily. And the church sought through wielding its sword to force their hand, to force them back onto the bottom rung of the ladder of ascent. This was a dangerous move on the part of the spiritual power and the clergy knew it very well and were generally very careful with its use. This is why Canon 47 of Lateran IV legislated against unjust excommunications, as did many, many other papal decrees and acts. It was a very, very serious matter. If someone persisted in excommunication, Lateran IV said for a year and a day, then there was no way of understanding his status as other than definitively outside the faith. The year and a day provision came from Roman law and then into feudal law, and, it, it, and where a year was considered the time period after which a decision was considered definitive, absolutely definitive. So after a year of excommunication, the excommunicate was understood to have repudiated definitively the salvation offered by the church. He was clearly not at all subject to the law of faith. Persistence in excommunication was not just proof that one was a heretic. In a very real sense, it was simply the definition of heresy. An important canon law book stated simply, he is said to be a heretic who perverts the sacraments of the church, as does one who commits simony. So is he who separates himself from the unity of the church. So is every excommunicated person. So is he who errs in the exposition of sacred scripture. So is he who invents a new sect or follows one. So is he who understands the articles of faith differently from the Roman church. So is he who thinks ill of the sacraments of the church. Once someone was in this sphere outside the faith, it became the imperative of the spiritual power to bring him back through missionary activity, through trying to get him to convert to the faith from his heresy. 
through trying to get him to return to the sacraments, through penance, and so to the realm of grace. This was how the spiritual power operated in the realm of coercion. It had no power, properly speaking, in this realm because the, its power concerned grace, and grace was not operative here, at least not sacramentally. Now for the temporal sword. The realm of coercion was the realm of mortal sin. The society under construction in this whole reform movement was a society of unity in faith and charity. Public mortal sinners were by their very sin not members of this society, but more than that, they threatened it directly. The most obvious example is a criminal, say a thief again. A thief destroyed justice and undermined trust in society. A thief introduced violence into the world of peace. He was a sinner and a criminal. In his sin, he effectively excommunicated himself, and he placed himself outside the society of justice, and he made himself a danger to that society. The temporal sword reacted to his violence in order to stop it for the sake of both the sinner himself and the innocent living in charity. The temporal sword's purpose then was to maintain an exterior peace in the realm of coercion. It did this directly through reacting to the overt violence of those outside the society of charity and through the threat of such a reaction. Remember, those who operated in the realm of mortal sin themselves seek peace. They are just looking in the wrong place. The reality of the temporal sword shifted their calculus in favor of the external peace that at least resembled the true peace found in the society of charity. Those who would act criminally were kept from doing so externally, even if internally, internally they were guilty of sin. In doing this, the temporal sword both created a space for the society of charity to operate freely, and it created a condition of external peace from which it was easier for the sinner to be converted back into the faith, not only because he developed the habit of peace, peace <clears throat> but because it created a space for the missionaries of the spiritual power to operate. Criminals, like thieves, are one thing, right? That we can all kind of handle that. But what about other public excommunicates or heretics? Those who have been struck formally by the spiritual sword. What was the temporal sword's role here? Well, Lateran four is very clear. The temporal sword must act against them. This is certainly the aspect of all of this that is the most shocking to modern sensibilities. But let's try to consider it from within the worldview that we're exploring. The society of charity that the reform movement of Lateran IV was trying to build was a society of the different orders, each living out their vocation to make Christ present in the world through his complete interiorization. This was a society of grace rooted in the word of God, preached by the clergy, and the grace of the sacraments poured out through them to the people. They simply did not believe that true peace, true charity, true faith was possible outside of Christ. This was not some sort of internal religion of spiritual ascent. It was essentially social. Remember, the ascent to the tropological in which Christ was interiorized was precisely the ascent into charity, which meant into the church, which was the society of those who, all, who, who conformed themselves to Christ. Those who did not pursue the ascent who did not receive the sacraments or listen to preaching, simply couldn't participate in the unity of faith and charity. In fact, as we will see a little later when I talk about the Albigensian Crusade, heresy itself was understood as bringing always with it violence. Within their understanding, the sword had to act both for the benefit of those people and for the protection of Christian society. Outright heresy, or contumacious, uh, or contumacious excommunicates, however, were the rare cases. For the most part, the spiritual power, the temporal power, and their respective swords were concerned with advancing the reform of everyday society. As I pointed out earlier in this talk, no one in this life achieved perfection. Reform was perpetual, and there was in everyone areas that remained at lower levels and in need of being pulled up toward perfection. There was even in everyone areas that remained in the realm of sin and so of coercion. Virtue and vice were everywhere intermingled and mixed. Navigating this was a tricky business full of danger. This is where the positive law came into play. The spiritual power was primarily regulated by canon law and the temporal by the civil or feudal law. 
And I think we can understand this law as managing the border between the realm of grace and that of sin. It served as guardrails to those in the realm of grace so they could clearly see the edge of the abyss of sin, and it lowered ladders down into the realm of sin that those there might ascend into grace. This was no less the case for those who wielded the spiritual and temporal powers themselves. They were faced with great temptations, and as soon as they stepped outside of charity, as soon as they used their power not out of love, they themselves descended into sin, into the realm of coercion. The procedures of the law helped keep them from doing this. They helped ensure that even if a bishop or a prince had sinful motives, his actions would create exterior peace and justice. We can see then why this reforming society was so juridical and why a council like Lateran IV, which was clearly the culmination of powerful, a powerfully spiritual reform movement, was so concerned about the reform of legal procedures, why it was so concerned with proper investigations and with adding layers of accountability whenever the spiritual or the temporal sword was used. This entire area where positive law operated, both canonical and civil, this entire borderland between the unredeemed and the redeemed, where most of the activity of reformed happened, was what they called the secular. What was happening in the world as opposed to in the cloister or heaven above. It was where the secular clergy and the secular power, another name for the temporal power, operated. However, similar to the rule in a monastery, the positive law was really the bottom rungs of the ascent. The positive law, both the canonical and the civil, to, this, to the extent that it was just and true, was completely contained within the new law of perfect charity. And as one ascended into it, the positive law faded away. In the ideal reformed society, the positive law could vanish because each person would contain it within themselves. This is, of course, a vision of perfect peace and so of heaven. The positive law was, we might say, the vestiges of the old law coming into being whenever people were operating at that first level of ascent. Only now it was, it was a law capable of transcending itself with the goal of rendering its swords superfluous. At a regional council in Vienna, a papal legate told the assembled fathers about the creation of man in God's image and man's fall in the garden. From this, the legate stated, domination of men and things was introduced because he did not know the rule of law. From human necessity, man made law for himself. God, though, the legate continued, gave just laws through Moses, but these laws were but figures of Christ through whose coming in the fullness of time eternal law has been established. And this eternal law worked on earth through the spiritual power. For the keys were given to Peter into per perpetuity, from which the beauty of all ecclesiastical law flows. This law, the legate asserted, ex existed for the vindication of the nations and the reproofs of the people, that the malice and cupidity of men might be restrained under the severity of the force of law, that they might learn to live honestly and not wound others to assign to each his right. Similarly, on the temporal side, the preface to an important French law code states, because evil and deception have grown so much during the human, among the human race that some men often do other men, men wrong and harm and commit crimes against them, against the will and commandments of God, and many have no fear nor dread of the severe judgment of Jesus Christ, and because we wish the people beneath us to be able to live honestly and in peace, and so that one will refrain from doing harm to another for, through fear of bodily punishment or the confiscation of property, and in order to punish and control offenders by means of law and rigorous justice, we call upon the help of God, who is a just judge above all others. And we have set out these laws which we want to put into practice in the secular courts in the whole kingdom and lordship of France. The sword was felt only by those who lived by the sword, in the realm of coercion. As the Dominican Vincent de Beauvoir wrote, any prince or legate legally rules those under him, not in, so, not in so far as they are human, but in so far as they have become brutes. The church did not abandon those who lived according to the sword, those who lived in the realm of vice, however. Rather, it was intrinsic to the church's very mission to reform of reform to operate in this realm in order to bring humanity out of it. 
This was the realm of the sword, and it was where the church wielded hers, always with the goal, however, of bringing humanity out of the realm of the sword and into that of charity and on to peace. Isn't this the story of salvation history? You can consider it lived anew every day in the life of the church. As I have mentioned, in the period uh, we are investigating, the spiritual power was primarily regulated by canon law and the temporal power by the civil or feudal law. But it would be a massive mistake to see these as sealed off from each other. Conceptually, they were for the most part two manifestations of human law that specified a single body of divine law. This was how Gratian, the author of the most important work of jurisprudence of the whole Middle Ages, understood them. What is more, the two powers that they regulated were wholly bound up together. Hostiensis, one of the greatest canonists of the period, wrote that, quote, the laity are similar to the father through their power, and theirs is the civil law. The religious are similar to the Holy Spirit through their holiness, and their law is theology. The secular clerics are similar to the son through wisdom, and they are the masters of canon law. As the three types of men were a trinity, were a trinity that formed a unity in the Holy Church and the Catholic faith, so the three persons of the Trinity found unity in their, find unity in their essence and divinity, end quote. So the three orders of society were distinct, but they were not parallel. They were profoundly united. This is a Trinitarian vision and a vision that is, of course, congruent with the senses of Scripture and with all the other sequences that we have, over the course of these lectures, mapped onto them. Priestly and royal power were wrapped up together in the person of Jesus Christ, and both priests and kings participated directly in making Jesus Christ fully present. It might be difficult for us, who are so used to the divide between church and state, but in order to understand Lateran IV, we need to recognize that the temporal power was absolutely intrinsic to the church of 1215. And as we have seen over and over again, the temporal, the physical, the events and things of this life, the historical sense, remain the starting place for redemption. The reader of the scripture started with the literal, the historical, but then he progressed into the allegorical and up the ladder of ascent towards contemplation and total understanding. But at no point was the historical abandoned or rendered obsolete or meaningless. Rather, its full meaning was only revealed as the reader progressed through the senses. All the senses depended upon and presupposed the historical foundation. But as the reader progressed in his understanding, which as we have seen meant progressing in his own conversion to Christ, the historical was brought up into and fulfilled in the spiritual. The temporal power in the sequence, in the sequence of social order that we are discussing today was like the historical sense. It was divine action in the world of sin. In fact, the king was placed explicitly in the place of David. The royal coronation rites used throughout Europe are full of references to David. The kings were anointed, and as they were being anointed by the archbishop, the choir of clerics sang antiphons and psalms associating the Christian king directly with David. The association, association helps us get at how they understood temporal power because it allows us to line it up directly with how they understood scripture. Remember, one of the things that I've pointed out a few times was that scripture's meaning was infinite. One could never exhaust it because ultimately its meaning was Christ himself, who is God. Rather, a fuller meaning of scripture was revealed as people progressed deeper into faith, charity, and hope. They understood more. To those who had progressed not at all, the allegorical reading was an absurdity. All that was present was the historical sense. Only those who had attained some degree of faith could start to see and understand how all pointed to Christ. This sort of progression continued in the ascent towards contemplation and so full understanding of the scripture and anagogy. In a similar way, in the sequence involved in social order that we are discussing today, to those who lived in the realm of coercion, in the simply historical, the king was the king of the Old Testament in the literal historical sense. He was the sword operating from the position of law to which they were subject. As the Christian moved up the ladder of ascent, the temporal power transitioned. 
It is not that kingship was somehow made obsolete or repudiated. Far from it. Rather, it was fulfilled. David, of course, was read allegorically as a type for Christ. Christ himself was the successor to David, but more than that, he was the perfection of Davidic kingship. Read allegorically, the association of the king with David was a Christological association. In the French rite of coronation, the archbishop prayed over the just anointed king, quote, God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who by the Father with the oil of exaltation was anointed through his participation. Likewise, through the present infusion of sacred oil, let the spirit of the paraclete pour over your head the blessing and let him make it penetrate to the interior of your heart. Since through this visible and manageable gift, the invisible is perceived and the just management of this temporal kingdom having been executed, let you merit to rule eternally with him. The further the people ascended toward perfection, the more the Davidic kingship of the Christian king that they were under approached the perfection of Christ's kingship. The temporal power ran from top to bottom in the ladder of ascent. At the bottom, it fought. At the top, it ruled eternally with Christ himself. Whether one experienced the king as, as the sword or as Christ himself was dependent on one's level of ascent. In the church on earth, through the orders of the laity and the clergy, Christ's kingship and his priesthood were made present, and they were made, and they were made present at every level of ascent, including at the very bottom, at the very starting point. At the top, they were united in grace, in faith, charity, and hope, and formed the very body of Christ himself. The priesthood and his kingship united in him. Uh, the priesthood and his kingship united in him. The king's office was to produce temporally in emulation of the eternal peace of the saints in heaven. And so, uh, temporally, yeah, the eternal peace of the saints in heaven. And in so doing, bring heaven and earth together to reduce the distinction between the church and the world. The king was to build the city of God, the city of peace. As he did, his sword, the sword would fade away because it had reign only over the realm of sin. This is the pursuit of salvation, of true peace, an objective dependent upon sacramental grace, and so on the priesthood, the spiritual power. It was only because the souls of the baptized were no longer subject to the power of sin that true peace could be achieved, and the sword, the force, ne the force necessary to compel men to justice, could fade away. In peace, the law was fulfilled, for peace was nothing less than the universalization of the love of God and the love of neighbor. To the extent that peace was achieved, the gap between heaven and earth closed. Both swords were wielded towards this end of peace and so salvation. Within this understanding, the church's wielding of the sword was an act of peace, an act of charity. What we see happening over the period of reform over the long 12th century leading up to Lateran IV was the extension of such a Davidic a reading of temporal power to include the knightly class as a whole, Christian knights, those who wielded the temporal sword of the church, had an essential role to play in the whole dynamic of reform. They operated from the realm of grace, but into the realm of mortal sin. They expressed their interiorization of the gospel through reaching down into the realm of simply history, into the Old Testament, we might even say, and enforcing the law and defending the peaceful against those who had not yet been converted. They engaged directly the violence of the world in order to transform it to peace, and their own conversion was the precondition of their office. The famous theologian Alan of Lille explained that just as man is made up of both body and spirit, so there are two swords with which to protect humanity, the material which repels injury and the spiritual which repels molestations of the mind. He wrote, Externally, let knights take up violence, therefore, for the reformation of peace and time. Internally, though, with the sword of the word of God, let them seek the restoration of peace in their own hearts. He goes on to contrast true knights who protect their homeland and defend the church from those who steal and oppress the poor. These last were not knights at all, but according to Alan, robbers and plunderers, not defenders but invaders, who thrust their swords into the gut of Mother Church. Allen saw these men as being in direct opposition to Christian society from the inside, both corporally and spiritually. 
The exercise of knighthood, Alan tells us, was bound up with warfare against the devil himself in both its spiritual and temporal dimensions. Over the course of the reforming period, holy knighthood was constructed as a necessary vocation within the church. The knights even had a sort of rule which they sought to conform themselves to. We call this rule chivalry. Hollywood notions aside, chivalry was in fact nothing other than a code for the Christian warrior. They were to defend the weak, widows, orphans, nuns, and clergy. They were to be honest and brave. They were to seek never their own advantage. They were to be disciplined in their training, always ready to do what they must. They were to be chaste, treating women with, with respect. They were to die gladly for justice. What's more, they were bound together through oats of fealty, forming companies of warriors surrounding a lord, the, bounds of, the bonds of which were understood as stronger than those of family. The knight sought to become totally devoted to his lord in perfect faithfulness and to his comrades in perfect charity, conforming his own will to theirs. This was so much the case that the poets who wrote the courtly love literature of the period borrowed language from the knights in order to explain what they meant by true love. These knights engaged in a very dangerous realm of the world, and if they fell into sin, they became brigands, thieves, marauders, bullies, and mercenaries, and the very people they were supposed to be fighting. This knightly vocation reached perfection in crusade. Let me give you just a little background on the crusades here. So Islam arose in the seventh century in Arabia, and the Arab armies with amazing speed conquered large portions of the Byzantine Roman Empire and what, would, what had been the Western Roman Empire sweeping across North Africa and crossing over into Spain and even into France, deep into France. All of these lands had been Christian and so there were large populations of Christians living under Arab domination. Fighting between Christians and Muslims in the East, in the West and on the Mediterranean Sea never stopped after these initial conquests. In the 11th century, though, things ramped up. The Muslims made major inroads into current-day Turkey, which was the heartland of the Byzantine Empire. It was like Ohio to them. The Eastern Empire appealed to his fellow Christians in the West for help, and the papacy responded. In 1095, Pope Urban II called on the Knights of Europe to take up their crosses and fight, and they responded in great numbers. Tens of thousands of fighting men traveled to the east, and in 1099, they took Jerusalem and formed a Christian kingdom in the Holy Land. This was just the beginning of the crusading movement. There was a constant conflict. It was a war that simply dragged on and on for centuries. This meant that the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem needed a constant stream of knights from the west. Over the course of the reforming 12th century, it became the pinnacle of chivalry to take the cross and to go and fight in the East. This was understood as an act of self-sacrifice, as a pilgrimage to atone for one's sins, and it was the ultimate act of charity in which the Lord that the knight served with total fealty became no other than the Lord God himself. The warriors who died were considered martyrs. Calling a new crusade was, of course, one of the two main focuses of Lateran IV. Pope Innocent III, in his sermon opening the council, referred to it as the physical Passover, this historical Passover, the manifestation of the Passover that occurred in the realm of history. The crusading knights were Christ-like. This sounds hard to our ears, but it was how they were understood. Going on crusade was voluntary. Knights normally, after having heard a stirring sermon about the plight of Christians in the Holy Land, rose and swore an oath to travel to the Holy Land and fight the enemies of Christ. They literally took up their crosses, sewing large cloth crosses on their clothing, and followed Christ. It was understood as the supreme act of charity. The knights, having conformed, themsel having conformed themselves to Christ, dared to venture deep into the realm of violence beyond the very boundaries of Christendom in an attempt to make peace. It was a profoundly religious undertaking, a type of monasticism even, and the church considered in her canon law men who had taken the cross as ecclesiastical persons. Their vows were like monastic vows, and they were treated legally as regulars. The monastic life and the crusading life were understood as so similar 
that they actually merged in the 12th century under the guidance of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and the Cistercians, the Knights of the Temple, normally just known as the Templars, were formed in the 12th century. These were warrior monks. The great preacher James of Vitry said of the Templars, going in time of war, returning in time of peace, going by means of action, returning by means of contemplation, going in war to fight, returning in peace to repose and devotion to prayer, so that they are like soldiers in battle and like monks in convent. We can see here clearly the crusaders living in the upper tier of grace in the spiritual senses, we might say, and yet descending, condescending, we might even say, into the realm of violence in order to bring peace. The virtue of the knights was therefore of the utmost importance. Their intentions were what ultimately separated them from the violent warriors against whom they fought. And the crusade literature emphasizes the spiritual requirements of crusaders. They must be fighting from a position of virtue in order to bring peace, to enforce the law against sinners and to defend the faithful from them. Otherwise, their use of the sword was most certainly sin, was uh, simply more violence in the realm of coercion. They had to make, to use an expression that I used last week, the tropological turn. And their tropology, their living of the gospel, was manifested in their fighting in the realm of history. Canon 71 of Lateran IV is an impassioned plea for a new crusade to the east. But this expedition to the Holy Land was not the only crusade at issue in Lateran IV. Since 1209, there had been a, wa a war raging in southern France, a war which we now call the Albigensian Crusade. In 1215, at Lateran IV, however, they called it the business of the peace and the faith. This name, Business of the Peace and the Faith, very accurately enca encapsulates what the conflict was all about. It concerned both the spiritual and the material, the faith and the peace. Because of this, it allows us to see how the Church of Lateran IV understood the Church's two swords and the relationship between heresy and violence. Now, modern historians tend to discuss the war as a crusade against heresy, and this is true, but it is also very misleading. In the modern West, we are used to thinking about religion as something private, something that has to do with the person's inner approach to the divine. We tend to read this understanding of religion into our concept of heresy. From our perspective, heresy may be incorrect belief. I think we can accept that someone could be mistaken about the faith, but, our mind, but in our mind, it remains a private mistake, and it seems clear to us that the use of violence against heretics is wrong. Their mistaken belief does not challenge social order significantly enough to justify the sword. But the Albigensian crusade was not based on our understanding of social order, but on the understanding that I have been discussing today. And in this understanding, heresy and violence were directly connected. The crusade was the business of the peace and the faith because it was directed against a whole society that the Orthodox saw as operating in the lowest tier in the realm of coercion, in the realm of history without grace. In particular, from the perspective of the Orthodox, the crusade was directed against a heretical society made up of violent laymen who were either mercenaries or who hired mercenaries and who protected heretical men of extreme austerity called perfecti, the perfected. These perfecti appear to have taught a type of dualism that viewed the temporal material realm as inherently evil and the creation of the evil God of the Old Testament. This was sometimes called Catharism, and those who believed it were sometimes called Cathars. To the Cathars, the God of the New Testament was the good God who ruled over the spiritual realm. The goal of this life to the, to the perfecti was to escape the prison of the body and free the spirit. The Orthodox who fought this war did not separate these heretics from their protectors, the evil knights. They were always presented together as two sides of the same coin in all the literature. Understanding this war requires that we understand to the Orthodox, the, Cath the Cathar holy man was a type of perverted monk or priest, a distortion of the spiritual, and his defender, a type of perverted knight, a distortion of the temporal. He was an unjust warrior, a mercenary, an anti-knight, who had disregard for true monks, women, widows, and orphans, who fought for money of all things. 
These men had turned southern France into a giant war zone. Having passed through the region, a Parisian abbot recounted constant danger, bandits, burning towns and fields. Nothing, he reported, was safe from the mercenaries. It was a region of dread, he continued, comparable to hell itself, full of death and heresy. As we have seen, the Orthodox understood the spiritual and the temporal as always bound up together. But they were bound up together in a dynamic of ascent within which the temporal was brought up into and perfected in the spiritual. The dualists, rather, viewed the spiritual and the temporal as fundamentally at odds. In fact, as, the war, as at war with each other. To the Orthodox, this error was directly connected to the violence of the region. How? Consider, dualists believed that the material world was the realm of the evil principle, that it could not be redeemed. In such a world, the very notion of moral temporal power was an absurdity. It was akin to talking about moral devil worship. The world was violent and disordered. Those who lived in it were violent and disordered. There could be no morality that would suggest that they be otherwise, no virtue that they could acquire. Only the spiritual men, the perfecti, who gave up as much interaction with the material world as possible, offered even a glimmer of good in the world. This theology justified the violence of the laity because it could not imagine anything else. There was no ascent of the laity into the tropological, no turning of their temporal vocation into the very mission of the church and so of Christ. There, was no, there were no sacraments, no Eucharist, no marriage, even eating, even eating defiled a man. They denied the possibility of a holy laity, of the temporal power of the church. Dualism was the denial of the sacramental and the incarnational of the goodness of the material world. As such, to the Orthodox, it was clearly the reason for both the mercenaries and the heretics. Pope Innocent III, who both called Lateran IV and launched the Albigensian Crusade, argued that all the Orthodox doctors taught that both the spiritual sword wielded by the priests and the material sword wielded by the laity were necessary for the defeat of evildoers and that both were praiseworthy. And in an incarnational and sacramental world, the spiritual fight and the temporal fight were to innocent two parts of the same war against the devil. The Pope explicitly singled out the heretics' denial of this principle as one of their major errors, a denial wrapped up in their dualism. The Orthodox repeatedly came back to this point. The heretics in southern France asserted that all use of the sword was mortal sin. This was the denial of the two swords of the church, which the author of one polemic asserted, one orthodox polemic asserted, was directly connected to the heretics' mistake regarding the two testaments of the Bible. The heretics viewed the material world as evil, the temporal sword as evil, and the Old Testament as evil. These were different manifestations of the same mistake in the views of the orthodox. So we can see that to the Orthodox Christian inhabiting a Trinitarian and sacramental cosmos of ascent from the historical to the anagogical, the heretics and the violent men were two sides of the same coin. The divine and the human, the soul and the body, the spiritual and the temporal, the doctrinal and the practical, the allegorical and the literal, the new and the Old Testaments remained totally bound up together. This was at the very core of Orthodoxy. And within this orthodoxy was a notion of a social order of peace and how it was to be achieved through ascent from the simply temporal into the spiritual, but without leaving the temporal behind. The business of the peace and the business of the faith were to the orthodox the same business. This has, to, this has been the point of the whole lecture. The priests were engaged in the business and so too were the crusaders, each in their own way. Within this worldview, heresy could not fail but to have repercussions for social order. Right belief, right worship, the reception of the sacraments, and right social order, that is to say true peace, were completely dependent on each other. They rose or fell on the ladder of ascent together. With this understanding, we can see how Lateran IV's confession of faith, which is clearly directed against the dualist errors and its assertion of Trinitarian and sacramental orthodoxy, and its assertion that all the baptized, including the married, can find salvation, how this confession of faith is directly connected to the canons against heresy, which require that bishops hold inquisitions into who the heretics are, and which require that the temporal sword acts against them, and how all these canons are related to the call for another crusade to the Holy Land. 
This is the vision of reform on the bottom end of the sequence of ascent. Let's return to the sermon that Pope Innocent III preached at the opening of the council. In it, he identified three senses of the Passover. The first was the physical Passover, which he identified as the crusade, as the passing over to Jerusalem. This was the church acting on the lowest rung in the ladder of ascent. This was the church wielding the material sword in the realm of the sword, in the realm of history not yet fulfilled and elevated into the spiritual senses of the Passover. This is what we have discussed. The church operated in this realm, however, from the realm of the spiritual. It was reaching down into the realm of violence in order to bring it up into the spiritual. This was the second sense of Passover identified by innocent, the spiritual Passover, the moral Passover. This was the reform of the universal church. We can see how just with the senses of scripture, the physical Passover, Passover was included completely in the spiritual Passover. The reform of the universal church most certainly included within it the crusade and the wielding of the church's swords generally. The second sense of the Passover was itself elevated into the final sense, the eternal sense of the Passover, which was, of course, salvation itself, but which was anticipated, according to Innocent in the Eucharist, which was the memorial of the Paschal, the Paschal sacrifice. In the Mass, the church was perfect. All the senses of the Passover were, were fulfilled in the Eucharistic Passover because it was, of course, the very Passover itself. This is a total vision capable of incorporating all of the church's activities within its central mystery. What we are seeing here is an approach to reality that is at its core analogical. The physical Passover is like the spiritual Passover, which is like the eternal Passover. They are identified with each other, but without destroying the distinction between them. In fact, the manner in which they are identified with each other emphasizes the distinction between them. This is the heart of the meaning of analogy. A conductor is to an orchestra as a general is to an army. This is true. Consider, he moves its various pieces towards some goal. He coordinates the whole in order to achieve some movement greater than that capable of any of the pieces, and so on. But think of the differences. Peace to war, creation to destruction, beauty to ugliness. One reaches up, the other down. Analogy permeates the worldview that I have been discussing in these lectures. The historical meaning of scripture is like the wielding of the sword, but they are so very different. Vertically, the allegorical reading is like the tropological. Its truth is contained within it, but they are not the same. I have, over the course of these lectures, described this worldview as fractal. This is a fractal. As involving the repetition of a self-similar pattern at different degrees of scale. But this fractalness is ultimately not linear or univocal, but, an anal but analogical. The pattern is repeated, but in its repetition is revealed difference. The difference is part of the pattern, as is the, as is the one observing it. The fractal whole, the fractal whole uh, of one, uh, the fractal whole of one living in the realm of coercion is like the fractal whole of one living in tropology, but they are also very different. For the one living in tropology, the minutest pattern of a single moral choice is like the massive pattern of salvation history itself, but it is also so very different. It is the Trinity that provides the ultimate pattern, the pattern to which all the others are an analog, and its full understanding lays always out of reach. As one ascends, one can get closer to this meta-pattern. One can deepen one's understanding and participation in it, but one never lays hold of it, never comprehends it in itself. This is, I think, the meaning of Lateran IV's famous declaration that between creator and creature there can be noted no similarity so great that a greater dissimilarity cannot be seen between them. And this declaration was made directly with regards to the Trinity, Joachim of Fiori had said that there was no supreme reality that was the Trinity itself, but rather the unity of the, of the persons of the Trinity was like the unity of the faithful in the church. His mistake, was to mis what, his mistake was to mistake an analogical identification for a univocal one. It is true that the unity of the Trinity is like the unity of the faithful in the church. Christ himself says so. But the reality of the Trinity's unity goes so far beyond this into a mystery that we cannot penetrate, though we can get closer to it. This is, I think, at the core of the whole worldview 
that we've been discussing. I started this lecture, by, this lecture series by suggesting that it is important that we relearn how to understand the world of the Fourth Lateran Council because we are entering into a postmodern period. And I think that this is an opportunity for the church, an opportunity that Lateran IV can help us take hold of. Postmodernism is really positivism declaring itself impossible. It is the declaration of the impossibility of objective observation, of the impossibility of the observer to remove himself from the thing observed, of the impossibility for him to remove himself from the social constructs of knowledge and language within which he makes sense of the world. It is the denial of the reality of some constant of comparison between all things. It is the assertion of difference as being the foundation of reality and not sameness. But an analogical vision of ascent toward truth is capable of handling all these objections to modernity and of repudiating postmodernism's nihilism in favor of a vision of profound meaning. We should consider how much distance is there really between declaring nothing to have meaning and declaring everything to have meaning. Not much, I think. In fact, I think the fight between objective truth and subjective truth collapses in the mass. The mass is participation in the final truth of the universe, which permeates all things, the meta-pattern itself. We can approach the full meaning of the mass. We can participate ever greater into the mystery, but only in the heavenly liturgy will the, the, the analogy collapse completely into identity. This liturgical cosmos and the fractal understanding of truth and meaning that animates it was, I think, the cosmos of Lateran Four and it is a cosmos to which we ought to pay attention. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.